Good afternoon. My name is Meryl Chertoff, and, <laughs> and I'm a fan of Walter Isaacson's, too. <laughs> I'm the director of the Justice and Society program at the Aspen Institute. The Justice and Society program is the oldest of the um, seminar and policy programs uh, in the Institute. Uh, we conduct a seminar every summer here in Aspen. Uh, we also do public programming uh, upcoming on September 22nd. For those of you who are Washington-oriented, uh, will be something on the overlawyering of America. Uh, the seminar, the Justice and Society seminar for this summer is full, but for any of you who are interested uh, in 2011, we have already uh, started to, uh, to assemble people who will be attending. So we hope to welcome some of you next year to the Justice and Society seminar. It's my very distinct privilege today uh, to welcome to the Aspen Ideas Festival General George Casey, who is the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. General Casey will be, excuse me, will be interviewed by David Sanger, the Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times and a senior writer for the New York Times. Uh, David has reported from around the world. He covered the five-year arc of the Bush presidency and now covers the Obama administration. Uh, he is the author of the recently published New York Times bestseller, The Inheritance uh, on National Security Challenges Facing the Obama Administration. Um, in uh, recognizing General Casey, I also want to recognize that he's brought with him today his secret weapon, uh, and that is his wife, Sheila Casey. Uh, as we know, military spouses also serve, and Sheila has her own very distinguished career in Washington as well. So, Sheila, we want to welcome you as well. Thank you very much, Merrill. Thank you, General Casey, for uh, joining us uh, today. General Casey's already been uh, introduced, but uh, just to give you his, his last two uh, posts, uh, one, he, he was in Iraq for um, 32 months during what I think uh, everyone would agree was pretty much the roughest years of the war, including that awful year of 2006. For the past three years and change, He's been chief of staff of the Army. And of course, the Joint Chiefs are responsible for thinking forward about uh, the future of uh, the forces, uh, as well as uh, making sure that they are um, supplied with uh, all that they need, both uh, in goods and strategy. And so in the next hour, we hope to cover the range of issues that uh, uh, General Casey uh, can discuss in that regard. And it's a great time. Uh, to get him because uh, nine months from now he, his term is up and uh, he's off to uh, the next stage of his life. Um, General Casey, let me start with probably the most general uh, and, and broadest question. Um, we have seen probably the biggest changes in the U.S. Army in the 10 years since 9-11 than at almost any point in history since uh, the end of World War II. And uh, so I'd like to ask you first to give us your sense of how the Army's doing, how it's changed, and then when you're done with that, I'm going to ask you about sort of the next 10 years. <laughs> okay, great. Well, first of all, it's, it's wonderful uh, to be out here with you. Walter, thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'll just talk for a second about the Army. 
it, it may not seem like it to you, but in two months, we will have been at war for nine years. And, and the result of that is that the, today's United States Army is a hugely professional combat seasoned force, really the best in the world at what it does. But it is also stretched and stressed by the demands of the last nine years. When you think about it, we, we've been deploying at one year out, one year back, for almost five years. And, and if you'd asked me five years ago if we could have sustained that, I would have said, no, you're crazy. And, and so the force that we have is usually resilient and, and usually committed. But I, but I wrestle with this uh, seasoned force, uh, stretched and stressed force. And, and so well, when I came in, I, Sheila and I traveled around the Army, and we talked to soldiers and families trying to get a sense of where we were. And, and I came up with the term that the Army was out of balance, that we were so weighed down by current demands that we couldn't do the things that we knew we needed to do to sustain the volunteer force for the long haul and to prepare to do other things. And I said that because I was hearing at the time the Army was broken, the Army was hollow, the Army wasn't ready, and that's, that's just not true. And so we put ourselves on a program uh, back in 2007 to get ourselves back in balance by the end of next year. And, and we have been moving uh, forward on, those, uh, on, on four imperatives. We had to sustain our soldiers and families. We had to continue to prepare soldiers for success in the current conflict. We had to reset them effectively when they returned. And then we had to continue to transform for an uncertain future. And I'll just say a few words about all those. Uh, sustain is probably the most important. Now, this is a volunteer force. And when I first came in, I called my predecessor, Shai Meyer. And Shai Meyer was the chief of staff in 1980 who went to Congress after Vietnam and said the Army's hollow. That was seven years after the last combat battalion left Vietnam. The Army's hollow. Fortunately, he had the foresight to tell the president that the day before. So I, Always I, a good strategic <laughs> move. Right. So I said, Shai, what happened? How, how, how did the Army get hollow? And he said, George, it's all about the people. And he said, there's a thin red line out there that you, you try as you might, you'll stumble across it. And the mid-level officers and non-commissioned officers, the ones that take you a decade or so to grow, they'll leave. And that's what happened. I lived through that in the 70s. It took us a decade to rebuild our non-commissioned officer corps and our officer corps after Vietnam. And, and so we focused on preserving are those mid-level officers and non-commissioned officers and doing things to retain them, and we've had good success. One of the things that we did, though, was to focus on families. And I'm an Army brat. I've been a member of an Army family for over 60 years. I won't go into how much over. But when I was traveling around the country with my mom and dad, the message to us in the back seat was make the best of it. Well, we're asking or so much of our soldiers and families asking them to continue to make the best of it uh, doesn't work. And so we really have ratcheted up what we're doing for families and, and I think to good effect. So sustaining soldiers and families is the core of what we need to do. Uh, the second element is to continue to prepare soldiers for success in what they're doing today. And we've made great strides in this. Uh, I ask the soldiers every time I travel around, what do you need, what's not working? And I, I generally get pretty positive responses. Occasionally I run into a soldier who wants another gun or something, but by and large they're pretty happy with what they have. Um, to give you an example of how we've improved in meeting the needs more rapidly, 
It took about three years while I was in Iraq to get a full complement of up-armored Humvees to the theater. Uh, when we made the decision to go to uh, better armored wheel vehicles, it took 18 months to get the full complement in the field. And just recently, we've got a smaller version of those to put in Afghanistan, and that took nine months. And so we are getting better at that, and the soldiers have the tools they need to do what they need, what, what they need to do. Uh, the third element is, is, to, is to reset them, reset the soldiers and the equipment when they come back, because they're turning around in a year or so and headed right back. So the equipment has got to come through an industrial process, get fixed, given back to them, and, and, and moved out. And it's, that's gone very well. Um, the other thing, though, is resetting the people. And we've recently completed a study that told us what we intuitively knew, that it takes two to three years to recover from a one-year combat deployment. It just does. The human mind and body weren't made to deal with the stresses of combat repeatedly. And so one of our goals was to keep soldiers home for at least two years. And with, even with the plus-up in Afghanistan and with the drawdown in Iraq, we actually get to the point uh, by the end of next year where we'll start having soldiers home for two years. And that's hugely important to the long-term health of the force. And then the last thing uh, I'll talk about is the transformation. And you mentioned this, David. Uh, but we have undergone, since September 11, the largest organizational change of the Army since World War II. And we've done this while we've been sending 150,000 soldiers over and back to Iraq and Afghanistan every year. Uh, for example, we, we were in 2001 a good army. Yeah, but it was an army designed largely to fight tank battles on the plains of Europe or in the deserts of, uh, of the Middle East. And, and when uh, September 11th happened, the first reaction was what's normal in, in large institutions. You take what you have and you try to adapt it to use it for something completely new. And so we tried that. And it really wasn't until 2004 when we said to ourselves, you know, these tanks really ain't working in Baghdad. <laughs> um, and, and so we started really in earnest in 2004. And since then, we have converted uh, all 300-plus brigades in the Army to modular organizations, designs that can be organized rapidly to meet the situation that presents itself. Uh, we have rebalanced ourselves, where we've taken about 160,000 soldiers away from skills that were very necessary in the Cold War and converted them to skills more necessary today. For example, um, we, we've stood down about 200 tank companies, artillery batteries, and air defense batteries, and we've stood up a corresponding numbers of special forces, civil affairs, psycholo psychological operations. All, all that has, has been going on here. We've also increased the size of the Army by about 75,000. President Bush put that on the table in 2007, and we've completed that growth already as a big help for us. If that wasn't enough, because of the Base Realignment and Closure Act and the, and the growth of the Army and bringing some soldiers back from Korea, uh, we are also restationing the whole Army. And between now and the end of next year, we will resettle about 380,000 soldiers, civilians, and family members as a result of this rebasing. And right now we have everybody on cell phones, and we'll publish the wiring diagram at the end when we get everybody settled at the end of next year. Uh, and then lastly, the thing that is probably uh, causing us the most internal change is we're putting the whole Army on a rotational model, much like the Navy and the Marine Corps have been on for years. 
And we have to do that because it's the only way we can meet these continued commitments at a tempo that's predictable and sustainable for the all-volunteer force. So that might be, have been more than you bargained for, David, but that's just an update a, on, on where we are. A, a great start. So let's begin to add on the layers of complication. In the midst of all of this, the military's overall budget has doubled in the 10 years, nine years since 9-11. Since, um, um, Defense Secretary Gates uh, made the point the other day that the U.S. military budget is now bigger than the military budgets of all the countries in the rest of the world combined. You made the point that the Army budget is bigger than... Russia and China defense budgets combined. Um, and so in this atmosphere, it's clear that's unsustainable for all the other reasons that are going on with the budget. And Secretary Gates has tried, sometimes <clears throat> successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, to kill off some fairly large um, weapon systems to enable you to have some room for growth in the personnel. He's run into extraordinary uh, blockades in Congress. Uh, he said recently, only in the parallel universe that is Washington, D.C., would cutting back a little bit from a doubling in the defense budget be considered gutting defense. <laughs> These are true words. Um, tell us first what you think you're going to need for the kind of growth that's going to be needed for the force in the next 10 years that you've described, and secondly, how you do that in this constrained budget environment. Okay. Uh, for, first of all, I think Secretary Gates is exactly on the right track with this. Um, we recognized this about two years ago. And for us in the Army, we don't have large ships or airplanes or satellite contracts that we can cut. Our money is in people. And, and so it becomes a question for us then of what's the size of the Army. And as you all know, people costs everywhere are increasing. And, and so the more people we have, the less that we can afford to spend on other things. So two years ago, we started focusing on, on how we were organized to do our business. And it was very, very enlightening. Um, the Department of the Army is a pretty good size, I'll say, not-for-profit organization. <laughs> and in those not-for-profit organizations, you do not have the market incentive that, that causes you to be more efficient with your money. The other thing, and this is, isn't necessarily confined to not-for-profits, but we are organized, and, and the way we're organized, we've created a lot of silos. And every organization has silos, but it seems like our silos have walls that are three feet thick, and things only go up, and they never go sideways. And so what that creates is a lot of redundancy. And especially in a time of war when you're, you're moving as fast as you can to get things to the troops. And, and when that happens, you, you, there's a lot of inefficiency. We're getting stuff. Anything you do fast is, is not as efficient as, as something done in, in, a, in a structured way. So we have been working, working at this. The other thing about um, these silos is we have a process where the, the requirements come up from below. So someone says, I need this. But the person who is developing the requirement is not, doesn't have any relation to the person who has to provide the money for the requirement. So it's open-ended. And so when they come up in these silos, it only, they only go up. And, and so the budget 
can only go up unless you do something to get at the requirements process and eliminate the redundancy. But General, every silo is in a congressional district. Yeah, that's and that true. Make, that makes a, a difference. That's true. Are we at a point right now where the Congress is fundamentally incapable of being able to restrain the size of the defense budget or help reorient it simply because <coughs> every weapon system, every silo has got its own constituency? How do we get out of the cycle that we're in? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I don't think we're, uh, we're, we're lost. Uh, and, I, and I think we, we have to continue to work, work at this and, and demonstrate, I mean, Congress better than anyone knows that we have to decrease the size of government spending. And, and so we're just gonna have to continue to work this. And I, I know Secretary Gates- I agree Gates, with it in general. It's just every time the Secretary comes up with local. a weapon sure. system, it's all local. Yeah. Um, let's turn but to- But anyway, to answer oh, your, sure. your first, the first part of your first question there was, uh, we, we believe that we can get at the two to $3 billion a year uh, that um, that we need uh, to, to not have to cut our force structure through these efficiencies that we've been working on for the last couple of years. And, and we've had good success on eliminating some redundancies and we are, we're gonna meet Secretary Gates's targets that he's already given us for the program here, not gone wood so far without having to reduce force structure, which is an important thing because for me to go out now and say we're gonna cut the force when we haven't even got them two years at home, I, I think that would have a really negative effect on the troops. The, um, the QDR that came out a few months ago, the Quadrennial Defense Review, was the first to sort of step away from the old concept that the United States needed to be able to fight a war in one place, do a holding action someplace, it was always the, the symbol of it was always the Korean Peninsula elsewhere, and moved instead to the concept of a much more flexible uh, military, especially the Army, that could do counterinsurgencies in different places around the world and still have the capability around to fight a major war if one needed to do it. Um, based on all that you have seen, both in your experience in Iraq and since you've been back at the Joint Chiefs, is that a realistic way to structure the U.S. military? Can we do that many different things at one time and be prepared for that many contingencies at one time? Yeah, I think we have to. And I think it, it was a, a very good and reasonable first step. But as I've looked at this now over time, from my perspective, the central organizing principle of the Department of Defense for the last 60 years has been conventional war, has been the ability to do these two major regional contingencies. That isn't what we're doing today. And, and, but yet the whole Department of Defense is lined up to produce the outputs for conventional war. And I have come to think, uh, after we've looked at the, the environment, and I'll say a few words about that in a second, is that versatility, the, the need to be able to do a variety of different things has got to become the central organizing principle of the department. And that's the way we're going with the Army. But, it, but as we look at the future, you know, we start from the point that there, we're at war. We're at war with a global extremist network that attacked us on our soil and has tried twice since Christmas to do it again. Uh, these guys aren't going to quit. They're not going to give up. They're not, they're not going to go away easily. So, so we believe that this is a long-term ideological struggle. And then we look at the trends in the global environment, and the trends seem more likely to exacerbate that situation rather than ameliorate it. And, and that leads us to think that we're in for a decade or so of what I call persistent conflict, protracted confrontation among states, 
non-states and individual actors who are increasingly willing to use violence to accomplish their political and ideological objectives. I think that's what we are looking at as a country. And, and I think that's troubling. And it's, we, the two things as we look at that environment that come out, it's gonna be more complex and it's gonna be more uncertain. And so you have to have yourselves organized to, to deal with a range of contingencies. And then you have to be agile enough to change directions because you're never gonna get exactly what you want. In fact, what does Yogi Berra say? Predictions are hard, especially when you're talking about the future. <laughs> I mean, I say what I said with great humility, knowing that the best we can hope to do is get it about right. You, um, you mentioned this 10 years of persistent conflict. Um, when President Bush was running for president the first time in, uh, in 2000, he talked about how we could not allow the United States military to become a nation-building force. It was not the role of the military to go do that. Uh, he then took a trip to Kosovo, saw that the only working institutions there were, in fact, the U.S. military. This was prior to 9-11. Post-9-11, gave a fairly lengthy speech at Virginia Military Institute, where General Marshall had been trained, about the need for a Marshall Plan in Afghanistan. And you have spent the past nine years trying to figure out whether he was right the first time in the campaign or right the second time uh, after he was elected about whether the military <laughs> was, was set up to go do this. Are I think he was right. <laughs> <laughs> Are we in a persistent 10-year effort to have the U.S. Army at the center of nation building as well? Um, you know, when we were talking about nation building, we were talking about a military that was designed to do conventional war. That's what, that's what we were set up to do. And as I said before, we, we were like that for 60 years. But the types of conflict that we're fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think are likely to, to be fighting here for a, a decade or so, are focused on the people. And I'm sure you've heard this said a thousand times. We're not going to succeed in either place by military means alone. You're only going to succeed when the people perceive that there's a government uh, that is representative of their interests, when there's an economy that, that ha can give them a, a job to support their families, when there are educational systems that, that they can educate their children. All those things are essential to the long-term success of the military operation. And so I, I think as a military, we got past that a while ago. In fact, in February 2008, uh, we published the first change to our formal warfighting doctrine since September 11th. And we said Army forces will simultaneously employ offense, defense, and stability operations to seize and retain the initiative and achieve decisive results. We raised stability operations, which is, could be your nation building, uh, to the level of offense and defense, because in the types of operations we're going to be conducting in the 21st century, we think that's an essential element of our ability to accomplish our national objectives, not just our military objectives. When you were in Iraq, you were there, as I said at the introduction, in some of the darkest days of the, of the war. You were also there when the awakening happened and when you were able to encourage that awakening, uh, which, as we look back over the course of the conflict, was a very decisive turning point. We've all been waiting for the equivalent of the awakening in Afghanistan, a very different society. While there have been some individual signs in some small places, you've not seen it on the scale that you saw it in Iraq. Why not? And does it have any prospect of occurring? 
every successful counterinsurgency has had a reconciliation process that as part of the solution. And so both in Iraq and Afghanistan, if they are to succeed, we'll have this reconciliation process. The, the process that we started in Iraq began right after the elections in January 2005. It, and it took that long of, of constant effort, of, have, of standing up an organization uh, to, to figure out who the right people were to talk to, to bring them in, to figure out what incentives they needed, to get the Iraqi government involved in the reconciliation process, because it, it ultimately will devolve to them. We, we can't reconcile with, with, the, you know, uh, with the Afghans. They have to do that themselves. Uh, and then one of the things that we learned from all that process is, is timing. And, and timing is, is everything in reconciliation. And successful reconciliations have come from a position of strength. And I think we're, go ahead. Admiral Mullen uh, was sitting on this stage a week ago at the Aspen Security Summit talking about the same subject. And we asked him whether that meant that ultimately you couldn't have complete reconciliation unless you had Mullah Omar and many of the others, the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, all as part of this process, something the US government has been cautious about. Do we take your statement to believe, uh, to, to include some of the um, hardest line American enemies who would have to be part of the solution? I, I, that's something that, that is always a matter of, of debate in this. But, but all of these, when they say uh, it has to be done from a position of strength, the first thing that has to happen for, for reconciliation, reconciliation to be successful is the insurgents need to have their, recognize that they have no military options. And I don't think we're quite there yet, mm -hmm. in especially in Afghanistan. But that has to happen. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that you don't have to wait for that to happen to start setting the conditions for the reconciliation. Right. And, and what happened was we started in 2005 to build uh, the reconciliation that ultimately became the, the awakening. And it really wasn't until 2006 when we got some forces in there and thumped them in Anbar province. And they, that, that's when they recognized that they needed to side with us and then the government. But your point here is they have to be convinced they're going to lose. In Afghanistan, I think we're all in agreement that the insurgents are not yet persuaded of that. And in fact, some of them have said, just to listen to their own propaganda, that since the American surge uh, peaks in the summer of 2011, and the president has said that at that point there will begin a withdrawal at some pace, pace is unclear, that uh, there's some incentive for the insurgents to hold out for another year and, and hope that starting in 2011 uh, that they could come back even if they are thumped over the next 12 months. Mm. How, do you, how do you get around that psychologically? Well, I mean, it's hard. First of all, don't believe everything the enemy says. I mean, they, they, they clearly are out to, to make themselves look stronger than sure. they really are. And that's something I've learned very painfully here over the last several years. Um, but, you know, this, this, time t this timeline, it's a double-edged sword, and, it, and it's not, there's no right or wrong answer to it. It's a really a question of balance. And, and, and people, different people will, will perceive timelines or timetables differently. And I think the, the, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that the Taliban are saying, okay, we're just going to wait them out. Well, they're going to be doing a lot of fighting while they're, while they're, they're waiting us out. And then I think, I think Admiral Mullen 
was probably pretty clear with you the other day that uh, there is a, a timetable, uh, a date in, in July of 11, to begin bringing out some of the, the surge forces, uh, but the number and uh, you know is is condition based. So we'll continue to work that. But when you say it's a double-edged <clears throat> sword, what you mean is, on the one hand, it creates an incentive for the Afghan government to step up by that time. On the other hand, it creates an incentive for the Taliban to, to hold on. And it's sort of a, a race for who can perform better between now and 2011. Right. And, but the other, thing that it, the other thing that it also does is it, it demonstrates to the Afghan people that, that we're not occupiers. We're not going to stay there for the long haul. We're there to help them get back on their feet, and then we're moving on. Mm-hmm. So, um, but again, it's, it, it's, it's balance. Now, in Iraq, you are going to be down to 50,000 troops, you believe, by the end of August, just two months uh, from now. Um, those people who advocated the surge would say that had it not been for the surge, we never would have gotten down to that 50,000. When you think back to the smaller size surge that was already underway when you were in the last months of your command in Iraq, could that also have accomplished what we're doing today? Could we have gotten down to these numbers even earlier, uh, do you believe, or do you believe that in the end the surge in Iraq really was decisive? Uh, I, I don't know if we could have uh, got down any earlier. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to say. Um, but I think the surge uh, was as important as a statement of the commitment of U.S. interest and resolve uh, as, as it was the additional troops. I mean, they certainly, they certainly helped. But there was a statement of United States commitment uh, that further spurred the awakening. Uh, and then when, when the uh, sons of Iraq were, were, were brought into the fold, that, that started eliminating some of the insurgency and, we, and, and they could get on with the political process. So I think the surge uh, was a decisive application of combat force at a critical time in the mission. And, and I think in, in the end, it has, has ultimately been successful. Before we open this up to questions, I just want to flip you around to the other side of the world for a moment. Um, you mentioned in your opening that you had moved a lot of, of troops out of Korea uh, in part to help feed these two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, we have just in the past few months seen uh, a North Korean ship, uh, a North Korean submarine uh, sink a South Korean ship, killing 46 aboard. Uh, there are some signs of new instability in North Korea just given the succession crisis that is underway there or succession politics. Could we come to regret the day that in our focus on um, the Middle East that we have actually pulled down by almost half the number of troops we've based in, uh, in, on the Korean Peninsula? Um, I don't necessarily think so, because what's happened during that period here is a huge increase in the capability of the South Korean security forces. I mean, their but, army but not is, such a huge increase that they were willing to go through with the, with the uh, command op- operational command transfer in 2012. That was just delayed until 2015. Right. And, but I think, but, but I mean, to your question, uh, the, there has been a significant increase in the capability of those forces there. And, and so uh, that our withdrawal of some of our forces has been mitigated uh, by that improvement. I mean, as you, as you just mentioned, um, the, we just agreed to, to President Lee's request to delay this transfer of operational control. Right now, um, the commander in Korea is the Combined Forces Command Korea is an American, 
and he basically commands and, con and controls Korean forces in the event of an emergency. Uh, there had been a plan in place for that control to pass back to the Koreans, uh, I think by April of 2012. It was 2012, but I'm not, not sure of the month. Um, at the request of President Lee of Korea, uh, President Obama just agreed to move that to 2015. And I think that that's an indication of the, uh, the strength of the relationship and uh, of our commitment to Korea. And so what, do, what does the United States need to do in partnership with the South Koreans to demonstrate to the North now, uh, politically, that the kind of behavior you've seen over the past year or two is something that the U.S. is prepared to respond to? You've seen, since President Obama was inaugurated, a missile test, a nuclear test, and the sinking of, a, um, uh, of the South Korean yeah. ship. Yeah, but I mean, that's another very, very difficult policy issue. Uh, right now, there's, there's things being worked in the United Nations. I think that it's important for that process to continue. Uh, but I think uh, we have to be very careful, we the United States, uh, with, our, with our South Korean allies uh, in, in doing something that may be misinterpreted and become inherently uh, increase the instability rather than, than decrease it right now. We just, just have to be very careful with that. And along those same lines, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Iran. Obviously, we've got a bigger military Thought we presence. were going to get by that. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Uh, um, uh, we've increased the American military presence to a small degree in, in the Gulf. Uh, we've been, uh, the United States has been providing um, uh, standard missiles and other anti-missile uh, equipment to a number of the, the Gulf neighbors. <clears throat> and yet there is this continuing debate played out here just a few days ago with the statements of the ambassador from the United Arab Emirates about whether or not an attack on the Iranian facilities, nuclear facilities, would be more destabilizing than an Iran that gets a nuclear weapons capability. As you debate this out among the chiefs, how do you weigh those two options? Well, I mean, you have put your finger on what is a hugely difficult policy issue for the country right now. And those types of discussion that you're talking about right now uh, are, are going on uh, within the government, and I wouldn't want to prejudge them, uh, the outcome of those discussions. But, I mean, that's the kind of challenges that you get in these days. There's, there's no good solutions, and the solution may be worse than the cure. And so that's, that's something that the administration is, is, is wrestling with, and, and I think you're going to see that play out over the next 12 to 24 months. But that's, I think just that's an indication of, of the types of challenges that are going to be facing us here over the next decade or so. And within the Army, are there preparations underway for what the reaction could be? If not within the Army. But not yeah, within the Army, no. but more broadly within the military. But at, at, we have contingency plans. That's what we do. We, we have contingency plans for everything, but we don't talk about specific plans. Well, let me open this up to uh, all of you. There are... Um, uh, people will be walking around with microphones. If you'd raise your hand, uh, tell us who you are, and actually ask a question uh, in the spirit <laughs> of asking. Um, we'll start with the gentleman right here in the black hat. Thanks, General. I'm Jason from Chicago. Thanks for coming. Um, I, I, want, I want to ask the question. Uh, I need to set it up just a little bit, but I won't take long. Both Afghanistan and Iraq are, are very resource-rich, and an integral part of the reconciliation process is business stability. 
Um, we know that Chinese corporations and Russian corporations are going into these areas and trying to capitalize on the stability, limited stability that's been created so far. My question to you is, do you think that congressional policy towards U.S. corporate culture essentially handcuffs uh, American ability, American business ability to participate in the reconciliation because we're not allowed to play on local terms? Uh, I'm not aware of specific congressional policies that limit U.S. business involvement. Uh, uh, Hart Scott Redino and Sarbanes-Oxley, things that um, don't allow us to, you know, to be blunt, bribery, for example, which is part, which is the Chinese are, are, are willing to, you know. <laughs> Here's I mean, your opportunity. Here's bribery. Let me make this. Corporate gifts, things of that nature that we can't, which are standard over there. I, I, did you not encounter them at all in Iraq? <laughs> I mean. I, I, I have footlockers and footlockers of junk that I've exchanged and gifts and things that I've exchanged. Um, I. I'm not stepping up for bribery at all. Right. Um, I wouldn't ask you to. What, what I saw in Iraq was opportunities for U.S. businesses to come in and get engaged. And, and there was a great effort uh, by a, a guy named Paul Brinkley who went out and brought in business leaders from around the country, and they met with uh, Iraqi businessmen, and they basically said, if you build X of these, I'll buy them from you. And so they were actually causing the businesses to get set up and get organized. I think that stuff like that is usually productive. And, and, I, and the other thing I'd say is I know the folks are trying to make inroads into the Iraqi oil uh, community, and I would think that the U.S. companies would have as much access to them as anyone else. Flip side of that, are we securing parts of Afghanistan for the Chinese who are not on the ground helping secure the place to go into yeah, the resources? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Understand it? I don't know. <laughs> Sir. John Debs, Palo Alto. Uh, first, thank you for your service and for all the people that are serving. Uh, uh, thank you. My question is one or two percent of the country is involved in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and the rest of us are told to party and have fun and go out and spend or whatever you know they say and to me this is morally wrong and so my question to you is how can we the other 98 percent or whatever we are help you more in what you have to do well, well thank you for that um, for, first of all um, you are, are, are already helping and, and I can tell you one of the things that has allowed this force to hang together over the last nine years has been the, the outspoken support of the American people for our soldiers and their families. Don't uh, underestimate the impact of talking to a soldier in the airport. Uh, I mean, I was, sitting, I was sitting in an airport coming back from leave when I was in Iraq, and these two young soldiers come up in their uniforms. And they're, they were clearly basic trainees. They were going back after Christmas break. And they sat down next to me, and I watched them. We chatted them up a little bit. And they went to pay their check, and they said it's taken care of. Now, as an aside, I got up and introduced and went over and said hello to him. And one of the guys looks at me and says, hey, are you General Casey? And I, and I said, well, yes, I am. He said, I thought you were taller. <laughs> but, but anyway, that, don't, don't underestimate the, the impact of that 
on the soldiers and their families. Um, the other thing I'd tell you is uh, the support that employers give to guardsmen and reservists is, is absolutely is essential. We have 70 to 80,000 guardsmen and reservists mobilized over the course of a year on a given day. Uh, that's a lot. But we wouldn't have been able to do what we've done without them. And, it's, and employers are carrying a heavy burden. My, my son is a reservist. He's mobilized. He's back on leave from Afghanistan. His company is paying the difference between his Army salary and what he was making when he left the company. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing that. That makes a, a, a huge difference. Um, and then the, the third thing I, I, I'd say to you, uh, before, I'd say two more things. Uh, and, and the third thing would be back, continuing with business. Uh, hire these young men and women that are getting out of the Army. And, and there, I think there may be some concern out there that everybody goes to combat and gets post-traumatic stress. And, and that's absolutely untrue. And we have surveys that document it. The, everybody that goes to combat gets stress, believe me. But what, what our studies show is that the vast majority of people who go to combat have a growth experience. And they come out stronger. And that's what you see. Uh, and then the, the last thing I'd ask you is, there, there are a lot of private organizations out there that are raising money to support wounded soldiers, to support their families, and to support the families of the fallen. And to the extent that you can support those groups, that, that, that would be a very positive thing. But don't underestimate the, the, what the impact the support of the American people has had on our ability to hold this force together. Gentlemen, right back there. Stuart Brand, Global Business Network. General Casey, thank you for what you're doing and from the sound of it, how you're doing it. Um, I've got a question of a paradox that seems to have survived from Vietnam. In Vietnam, we had Vietnamese troops on our side and Vietnamese troops, North Viet, Viet Cong, that we were fighting. And during the course of that war, Vietnamese troops on our side became kind of dependent and not very motivated. And all that time, the Viet Cong was becoming more and more skillful as they were fighting a more and more skillful us, and their motivation stayed strong. How is what we're doing with the Taliban going to be different from that? Because it seems like we're facing a situ similar situation where the Afghan troops that we're trying to train up, they're coming up in somewhat of a dependent mode with us. But the Taliban troops we're fighting are getting more and more skillful fighting us. How do we fix that? Yeah, I, I mean, that... That is a central challenge uh, when you're working with indigenous forces. But you will only succeed when those indigenous forces can maintain domestic order and deny their countries as safe havens for terrorists. And so it, you, it, it's a question of balance. It's not one or the other. And, I mean, we, we wrestled with this in Iraq all the time. You know, we build these units, then we take them on operations, and then you try to get them to do something, but they wouldn't do it unless you were standing there with them. And, and it, took, it took the better part of three years to work them through that till they finally got the confidence that they could do it on their own. And, and the other thing I saw even at, at the highest levels of uh, the higher levels, you know, people uh, won't necessarily take risk. And, and Iraqi leaders won't, weren't necessarily ready to take a lot of risk, and, and they came by it honestly. They came from a culture uh, under Saddam Hussein for 35 years that if you made a mistake, the consequences were often worse than you could stand. And, and so anyway, it's a, it's a matter of training our soldiers 
uh, to find the right balance between spoon feeding them and, and putting them on their way. But it just takes time to go through that process. And we have to do it. Right here. Just wait a moment for the microphone that's just coming down to you. Thank you. Thank you, General Casey, for your um, recognition of the need for recovery um, by returning um, veterans. I'm Gail Sheehy. And last uh, fall, I was following uh, a revolutionary program that you introduced of resiliency training um, to train soldiers in emotional resiliency on the based on the principles of positive psychology mm -hmm. and through drill instructors, um, not the softies we would think would be, you know, training people in emotional resilience, but they really like the program. So I wonder if you could tell us how it's working. Uh, it, the, the program that Gail is describing is called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. And it was one of the things that we realized that we had to give our soldiers and family members the skills on the front end so they wouldn't get the problem to begin with. You know, about two years ago, we, we looked at all the programs that we were doing to help soldiers deal with the, the cumulative effects of, of then seven years at war. And, and we realized that all our programs were after the fact. We had good treatment programs, but they were all after the fact. And so we went after this and spent uh, the better part of 18 months with some of the best minds in the country uh, trying to figure out what we could do to build a program to give the soldiers skills to be more resilient. Uh, the program it, it re revolves around a, 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 an assessment tool, and we started that in October. And to date, over 750,000 soldiers and family members have taken this tool. And it takes you about 20 minutes, and it gives you assessment of, of your strengths in the five key areas of fitness, physical, emotional, social, spiritual, and family. And you, and you get, just get a bar graph. So the soldier can look at it and say, well, I got a long bar here and a long bar here. Okay, I got a short bar here. It then allows them to connect uh, self-help modules online in the privacy of their own home and, and get some, some tips on how they can Im uh, improve their strengths. The third point, and this is the, the drill sergeant uh, comment that was made here, we are training master resilience trainers, sergeants. And these sergeants are going to University of Pennsylvania for 10 days, and, and they're getting trained by the professors there on how to use these skills. We've trained about 1,300 of them already, and they're out in the force. Our goal is to get one of those for each battalion in the Army by the end of this year. Uh, so th this is a program that has a lot of promise. Uh, right now, we're kind of in a... In, in, a, in a period where we're bridging from people have taken the test, but there's not enough resilience trainers in the field to get the program actively going. But I suspect by the end of this year, it'll be something that, that will be ingrained in the Army culture. Successful as the resilience in training has been, you're dealing with an unusually high number of suicides these days. How come? Oh, uh, well, it, it's, a combi it's a combination of things. I mean, there's no one, one answer. In fact, we, have, we commissioned about a year and a half ago now a study with the National Institute of Mental Health. It's a five-year study to help us look at the whole problem of suicide. Uh, I, suicide, as we look at this, the, 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 the leading causes that we see uh, are relationships, relationship problems, financial problems, and then there is usually drug and alcohol mixed in with, with those other problems. Uh, and then the fourth element is that there, that there just seems to be a lack of resilience and a lack of those kinds of skills 
in the population that's, that's coming into, into the Army. Uh, we've been working this very hard. We have a very active suicide prevention program. We've got the comprehensive soldier fitness program going. Um, but as you suggest, since 2004, uh, the number of suicides over the course of a year has increased by about 20 a year. Now, knock on wood, so far this year, we're, we're at the same number as we were last year. And, and if, if that continues, I'm hopeful that we're doing some things that can stem the tide. Um, it's not all about deployments. And when we look at the data, it's, it's kind of interesting because a third of the soldiers uh, who commit suicide have never deployed. And a third uh, commit suicide while deployed, and then another third have deployed, but it happens after they're back. So I believe it's a contributing factor, but it's not the overriding factor. There was a hand back here before. Yeah. Uh, Todd Martin, Dallas and Aspen. Uh, our share of uh, global defense uh, since World War II has well exceeded our share of GDP. Um, have you thought about uh, how long it would take and, and how we would get to sharing the defense responsibility for, uh, let's call it, non-troubled regions of the world with the people that are there so that our share of global defense approaches our share of uh, GDP? I, I think that's the exact approach that the President spelled out in the National Security Strategy, that we have to go after more collective security uh, and help others do more uh, for security around the world. Now, that said, uh, if you look what's happening in Europe, it's going in the other direction, that the money that some of these countries are willing to put toward defense is going down and going down fairly sharply. So that's, that's the tension that, 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 that we have there. Back here. I'm Lauren Cobb from Boulder, and in the interest of full disclosure, I am a military subcontractor for U.S. Southern Command. Um, How'd you get up the, here? <laughs> <laughs> part of the operations that our military does um, are not warfighting. They are things like uh, peacekeeping, humanitarian missions, disaster relief operations, uh, peacekeeping for the U.N., peace enforcement under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. There's a, a nation building. A large group of things which uh, are not classical warfighting. As we move further into the 21st century, how do you see that developing? Is it going to get more, or will we de-emphasize it? What's your vision? Well, the, the doctrine that, that I described that we put out in February of 2008 looks at, our, at having the ability to operate across the spectrum of conflict, from peacekeeping to conventional war. And so the versatile forces that we're building have to be able to, to plug in at any place on that spectrum and, and be successful. Now, that's, that's a tall order. But I, I believe we have to be involved in a, in a range of activities because involvement in a peacekeeping operation may prevent a, a larger or broader conflict. And so it's entirely appropriate for us to, to be involved in those kinds of things. But, I, but again, I, I think... We in the military are already moving away from the notion that until if we're not fighting the big one, we're not working, and, and we're, we're, well, we're well past that. And, and I believe 
That is the mindset that, that we have to have to be successful in 21st Century Conference. We are down to just um, time for two or three more questions if the questions are short and induce short answers. Uh, right back here. Um, this is a good follow-up to the last question, um, General Casey. Patricia Ellis, Women's Foreign Policy Group. Um, the military has taken the lead on nation building, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your relations with the civilian side, i.e. State Department and AED, AID, and how you see the relationship evolving. Are they going to be taking on more of the tasks, or how, how do you see the relationship? And, and maybe along the way while you're doing that, you can explain why it is that this long into the Obama administration, we still see relatively few, comparatively few, State Department uh, and AID workers in Afghanistan uh, compared to, say, the surge in the, in the yeah. military force. Um, first, my relationship, John Negroponte was around here uh, the, over the last couple of days. He was the ambassador in Iraq when, when we went in together. Uh, within two days after I was nominated, we met in my office. And, and we agreed, one team, one mission, that the civil military effort had to go forward, forward as one. And, and we worked very, very hard uh, to make that happen. I, I believe that's the only way we're going to be successful. Now, there's all type of the cultural and, and, uh, and sniping that goes back and forth. But if the leaders don't commit to that up front, th then it doesn't happen. And, and civil military cooperation is essential for the nation to succeed. And as I mentioned before, there's no military solutions here. The military and the civil side have to complement each other if we're going to be successful. Uh, so I've, I've worked very hard uh, to build relationships, not only between myself and the ambassador, but between my staff and the ambassador. And to John's credit, he accepted 300 guys and gals with guns into his embassy because we felt it was important to have uh, my staff and his staff working together. And, and, and so that, that process, I think, has to, has to continue. Um, I don't think it's a secret uh, that some of the other agencies of the government have been slower to adapt to the challenges that we're facing in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and that, candidly, that has been a point of friction among some of the soldiers, because they're out there working 24-7, and they see someone else that has 60 days of leave a year. And they, and that, you know, they take off. Now, that doesn't mean they're not committed because everybody out there is working their tails off. But I think we have to, we have to keep pressing the other agencies of the government uh, to get more adaptable and to get more used to operating in the kinds of environments that we're operating in. Okay. Take one more right here. Sir. Uh, uh, thank you very much. You ought to re-up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I went over 40 years service on the 6th of June. I think that's plenty. <laughs> uh, that, that resilience training uh, caught a, uh, my attention because during World War II, Outward Bound was founded on the same principle. So it seems to work, prepare our soldiers for those tough times. We're actually working with Outward Bound, and they're running uh, trips for wounded soldiers for exactly that purpose. Great, I'm glad to hear that. Another lesson from World War II uh, ties to the last question on the Marshall Plan was led by the State Department and civilians. Uh, you just answered that question, but I wonder uh, at what point during a 
our longest war ever, nine years, <coughs> that the mere presence of the military becomes part of the problem. You become the target, you know, and if, yep. if maybe you were in different uniforms or something. Yeah. I, I just wonder. <coughs> I went over and spoke to a group of 50 foreign service officers at the State Department, and, and they were trying to figure out how to have better civil-military relations. And, and I, I kind of went back and forth between this is what you think of us and this is what we think of you. But one of the, we are our own worst enemy, the, the military sometimes. I mean, our, our can-do attitude, we get in there and we just try to do, 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 and everybody else get out of the way. And it is not necessarily the best way all the time. And so that's part of the tension that, that we have here. And uh, the, the other thing that just drives the, the, the civil side crazy is there are so many of us, you know? I mean, we, I'd have six colonels standing around a foreign service officer's desk saying, the CG wants this done this week. This poor guy is going, come on, I'm only one. So there's, I mean, we have, and, and I think we have done a good job of changing and adapting over time, but, but we have our own culture too, and it's not always helpful. Well, I thank you very much, General Casey, for your service, for your comments today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.